0: Welcome to the Kronos podcast, About Time. In this session, Nigel Clifford joins Court Egan of Gatehouse Chambers, along with Lachlan Steer of Druce's Solicitors. The trio look at all things delay, from methods of analysis to recent developments in the law, and presenting delay in court and tribunals.
1: Nigel, do you want to take us through some of the various methods of delay analysis and what the differences between them are and the pros and cons of each one?
2: Sure, yeah, I can, I can kick off, no problem. I'm a civil engineer by, by trade, 20 years working on construction sites and design offices and uh, fallen into the, the dark art of um, delay analysis, which has uh, given me the opportunity to focus on claim report writing and all the way through to expert witness. We have um, various types of delay analysis. That we undertake. Perhaps I'll start by just defining what delay analysis is. It's the process of determining how a, a project's program has been impacted by certain events that have occurred, whether this is bad weather or instruction variation and the like. And we carry out delay analysis before project commences, during a project, for events that have occurred any time prior to completion or post-completion, which is generally the case when Kronos get involved or any or all of the events that have occurred during a project. Now delay analysis identifies why delays occur on a construction project and the impact they're expected to have or have had on the overall programme. Now for the delay analysis to take place, what in general we would like to see from the party that uh, we are being instructed by are lots of records. Now, ideally, we would like to see the contract between the parties just to understand the context of, of the project. All the programs have been issued. Native format would be preferable so we can open them up and see how the, the programs have been put together. Progress reports, meeting minutes, schedules of variations, compensation events, etc. Extension of time claims have been awarded to date so that we can appreciate how much of the residual EOT is is up for grabs. Site diaries and allocation sheets would be good in the case of needing to put an as-built together and various photographs of of the site would also be useful in understanding the project. So we need to get under the skin of the project in order to put together a reasonable delay analysis. To put the uh, delay analysis together, you often have to consider at what stage the project is at. Um, are we during the job or is it towards the end? Is it post-completion, where we're in dispute? Because there are various types of delay analysis and there are only certain ones that apply for each stage of a project. We turn to a guidance note called the, the Society of Construction Law Delay and Disruption Protocol, second edition. Now that document It's not a contract document, it is a guidance document, but it is generally used as a go-to document to understand how delay and disruption claims are put together. Now, I'll start by just uh, taking you through the delay and disruption protocol. At the beginning of the document on page one, it states that it is not intended that the protocol should be a contract document nor does it purport to take precedence over the express terms and governing law of a contract or be a statement of the law. It represents a scheme for dealing with delay and disruption issues that is balanced and viable. It goes on to describe how it is general and it should not be a benchmark for good practice. However, it does appear that it is a good benchmark for good practice and it's often used in and stated in, in judgments where the Society of Construction Law, Delay and Disruption Protocol has been used and, and stated by both sides in how they've determined what method of delay analysis they will be using. Those caveats aside, buried away on page 34 of the document is a nice table that lists six types of delay analysis. And I will list them briefly, I won't go into detail for all of them, but for early stage of the contract, an impacted as-planned analysis might be used, where, say, possession hasn't been given on a contract, then the effect on delay can be modeled using a forward-looking prospective analysis to establish the effect on completion. The second in the table is a time impact analysis. Again, it is a prospective form of forward-looking EOT analysis, which uses the baseline program and Various delay events can be modeled into the updated programs during the project to establish the effect on completion. Uh, Then we have two types of windows analysis. We have time slice windows analysis and an as-planned versus as-built windows analysis. Both are considered to be retrospective forms of analysis, i.e. looking back. These are establishing the cause from the effect that is known. Whereas the first two I mentioned, you know the cause and you're establishing the effect. So the Windows types of analysis are effect and cause types of analysis, and they need baseline program information and various stages of the contract are interrogated to establish the effect on the critical path. The fifth type of analysis is a retrospective longest path analysis, where possibly because of the lack of information available, the as-built program is, is looked at and the longest path, the longest path back through the project is considered to be... The project's critical path and the analysis without software is generally used to look back along that critical path to establish um, which events delayed the project and then finally in the table we have a collapsed as-built analysis which is probably the least used um, where you'd need a an as-built program you can see your delay events you would collapse the program after taking out those delay events, just to see the net effect of the delay. Um, so that is, that is a form of analysis that is not used so much compared to the others.
1: Nigel, is there a form that's that kind of considered the best?
2: No, you, you can't really say that one is better than the other. I think you can say that this table, as long as the form of analysis you choose is appropriate for the stage of the project, then whichever method you use, you should end up with the same result. That is the, the general consensus. I'd say for a for an event that occurred during the job and the job was finished, then you wouldn't use the impacted as planned analysis because that's that's a theoretical form of analysis. It's prospective. It's forward looking. You need a form of analysis that is retrospective, looking back on on the project. Now, that leads me nicely into a, a recent case that was uh, decided. It was um, the Blackburn bus station. That was the Thomas Barnes and Sons uh, against Blackburn with Darwin Borough Council. The Blackburn bus station was uh, significantly delayed and there was two different um, delay experts presenting entirely different approaches to their analysis. Now, the judgment, I'm reading from the judgment here, paragraph 108, both experts had referred in their reports to the SCL protocol. Mr. Hudson said that he had chosen the as-planned versus as-built windows analysis method, which is a retrospective form analysis, tick, whereas Mr. Gunson said he had chosen a hybrid of the time-slice windows analysis and time-impact analysis, one of which is retrospective, another prospective. Mr. Hudson was cross-examined on the basis he had not, in fact, followed the as plan versus as-built method, whereas Mr. Gunson was cross-examined on the basis it was inappropriate to use the time slice analysis. Both arguments had some force. However, in my judgment, the judge says, it would be wrong to attach too much importance to a close analysis of whether each had properly chosen or loyally followed the particular method selected. The SCL protocol itself discourages such an approach. And then it goes on to say, Almost exactly what I said earlier about the fact that the SCL protocol is guidance. It's not intended to be a contract document. And its aim is to be consistent with good practice rather to be a benchmark of best practice. So that explains a recent, very recent case, the last couple of months. Just so long as you've done one of the methods that is appropriate, then your your case will be heard. If, you're, if you've if used a method that is incorrect, like the one I explained earlier, um, a prospective form of analysis for a project that's long since completed, then you probably won't be successful.
1: Thanks, Nigel. Lachlan, yeah. um, Nigel mentioned there a few times that the SEL protocol is not a contract document. Um, in fact, he stressed the point, but it still, seems to confuse a lot of people do you know why that is what is it about it that people still think it's a contract document
0: well I think first of all it's a very useful guide Um, but ultimately uh, given the flexibility there with the different types of delay analysis that Nigel has discussed I suppose people could be slightly confused as to what might be the appropriate usage now Nigel, of course, is a delay expert and will we'll, you know, know which one to use. But I suppose coming at it you know, from a you know, purely legal perspective or if you're on the client side, it's a lot of information and that could pose a challenge to someone that hasn't sought the expert advice in the first instance.
1: Thank you. And Corp, come coming to you on the methods of analysis, when you're preparing for cross-examination, do you have a, a method that you're like, oh, yeah, that's the one that, that mm-hmm. I can Pick holes in is, is there one that's better than the other or or like yeah. Nigel says does it really matter?
3: Uh, well, well, if I'm being frank, if if I'm preparing for cross examination, then whichever one has been used by the opposing expert <laughs> is wrong. So that's my starting point when it comes to cross examination. I think it's interesting from my perspective because I obviously tend to come in at the back end when things have gone wrong and there is a dispute in respect of delay. And by that stage, it's quite often the case that delay issues have crystallized to the point where expert evidence has often already been obtained. So at my stage, delay evidence is just a, a fact of life. It's something that's you know just going to hit my desk whenever there's a case that involves issues of delay. And at that point, you know, we are stuck with whichever forms of delay analysis the experts have gone with. And as I say, and as Nigel said, really, it's the facts of the specific case, really. And if the contract prescribes a form of delay like analysis, that obviously takes precedence. But in most cases, it's just the facts of the specific case that are going to dictate what the best method is. And then, if anything, it's also the application of the method to the particular facts of the case that requires a lot of uh, skill and thought. And that's where uh, cross examination often focuses
1: okay. and what's the attitude of the courts and dispute resolvers to delay analysis
3: well again i think i think that's an interesting question because obviously i come in at the back end like like i say so i see it when you often have opposing reports in respect of the same project so from my perspective i would say that you, know, you almost never get a report whether it be your reports or the opposing report where you necessarily agree with absolutely every element of it it's very easy and if anything i'm conditioned <laughs> to see the issues with reports rather than to think oh that's actually a very good report so it's it's easy to uh, highlight you know things that you might disagree with But I think the courts and practitioners are very used to it, and it is helpful, particularly from my perspective. It definitely helps to focus in on what the relevant contemporary documentation is, what's the baseline program, what are any subsequent programs so that we can track delay. And it's also helpful just to get a sense of the most relevant events and their duration, because Coming in as counsel, obviously, you know, you are stepping into the project and you're trying to inhabit it, but you are never going to have looked at the type of documents that the delay expert has. So it's very helpful for them, basically, to assist you in taking steps, looking at the contemporaneous documentation that you're unlikely to have had time or the opportunity to look at at that point.
1: Lachlan, would you agree with that? Do you think there's a general acceptance of the needs and benefits of delay analysis?
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, I think, uh, you know, as Court has alluded to, it makes everyone's lives easier. And actually, you know, the onus is on uh, whoever's asserting something to prove it. So naturally, the reports and everything else that go behind that are going to assist. I did just want to pick up on one thing from the uh, Thomas Barnes case that was mentioned earlier, because actually, um, what the judge said there was that, um, you know, people tend to forget that it's not simply a choice between two expert reports. Uh, ultimately, it's for the court to decide and determine um, based on the, the facts. So I think, um, you know, as court said, it, it, it's very rare that you'll get a report that is entirely accepted. Um, but the point is that the court is still able to actually form a view, perhaps intermediate to those of the respective experts. Right.
1: Um I've got a quote here from Justice Coulson it says delay experts are usually construction professionals with a quantity surveying background the line between time and money is notoriously blurred and in construction arbitrations it can disappear altogether rather like accountants in some types of commercial dispute it is not always easy to discern what specialist expertise if any they bring to bear on the issues in dispute Nigel do you think that's fair
2: Well that's a very general statement I'm a I'm not a QS I'm a civil engineer Background in design, construction, light rail, heavy rail, maintenance and operations. So the blurring of the lines is, is definitely not there for me, but that, that may be fair in, in, in a lot of other cases. But um, the delay expert, who is a quantity surveyor by background, um, possibly wants to take on more than he, he should. So in my case, the, the lines are very much clearer. Um, the quantity surveyor delay expert probably wants to do the, the, the time and the money rather than focus on what his instructions are. So um, that's certainly not the case for me, but
3: it may be a fair statement.
1: Court or Lachlan, do you want to, to weigh in on how the, the courts have treated experts?
3: <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll give my perspective to begin with. that Obviously, I have to be slightly careful what I say with the amount of delay right. experts that I know, but... <laughs> Um, speaking from my own specific experience I, I think in my experience the main issue actually tends to be a failure to take a step back at the outset of the project and I think that actually is an underreported element of the Thomas Barnes case that we've mentioned quite a few times today already in that it can be an issue where an expert comes in and effectively from the outset knows what the contractor or subcontractor or whoever, what their case is on delay, and then effectively reverse engineers an outcome. And that really comes through in various elements of the Thomas Barnes case.
1: Is it difficult to manage, say, your client's expectations when they've got an idea of what went wrong and why, and the expert comes along and, and says it's something different?
0: Well, I think in the first instance, the focus needs to be on getting to the truth or to the extent possible, um, to be in possession of all the facts, because inevitably, uh, when you first get instructions, what the client tells you has happened, very rarely has um, a complete semblance of what in fact has happened, um, egos and memories being as they are. So I think the first point is trying to get uh, an objective assessment of precisely what has happened, and then explaining, look, There's actually no disbenefit to pleading a degree of culpability. In fact, again, experts have been criticised in the past for deliberately ignoring or treating as irrelevant um, certain factors that would be detrimental to their client's case. And actually, I think the courts in general are impressed, um, or at least will grant further leeway to people that say, look, we acknowledge that this is a period for which we're responsible for it's delay. Um, However... Uh, as against the overall programme of the job, um, this is actually the period where we're not responsible for this delay. So um, actually owning up, I think, um, is something that, you know, could be done more often. actually people are are sometimes reticent
1: to do. Nigel, do you want to add anything to that point?
2: Uh, I totally agree. Um, We have uh, a lot of, I'd say, contractors, subcontractors, clients that are all all guilty of... um, trying to either not give anything or claim everything. Contractors wanting a full extension of time. Clients saying, no, absolutely not. Bat it back. But um, as delay experts, we we have to be impartial. And generally from our assessment, from our, our analysis, we see that, for example, contractor claiming 20 weeks of delay has actually delay the job himself by five weeks, and it's pretty categoric. It's our duty as experts to be impartial and uh, to, to write that up. And similarly for a, for a client, if it's pretty clear that um, the client has not instructed something he should have instructed from the advice from the legal team, then uh, it's clear that that should be incorporated into any claim.
1: Um, moving on to preparing for, for disputes, there's the kind of mantra of records, records, records. But what should people be considering keeping? And is it more than just keeping everything?
2: Yeah, the, the records, records, records mantra is, is, is so true. Um, you, you hear it all the time. For, for me in my, in my, in my 50s, <laughs> um, I've been on construction sites uh, all over the country, all over the world and you see that essentially construction projects are a claim in progress now a lot of them get settled over a gin and tonic however the ones that don't you, you see the records and, and you, you see gaps big gaps especially when it comes to program and the um, information that is very useful to us are the progress reports the meeting minutes um, they're generally okay they're held regularly and they're they keep good records in, in those, those, those little gems of uh, information within those documents. However, it's the, the site diaries, the allocation sheets, the programs. Those are the, the more important information to, to us as delay experts that so we can really, really appreciate what went on on a day-to-day basis uh, rather than the general summaries. That are produced in the progress reports and meeting minutes and photographs as well picture tells a thousand words it does but it really helps us uh, establish what was happening on and when and you can often see in some photographs that um what you're looking at is something steel frame going up but in the background is is some drainage that hasn't gone in that the contractor has claimed has gone in so you can just by going through the, the photos and appreciating the project those can be very very useful bits of information as well so it's it's um, treating you know if you're an experienced site manager you should treat your project as a potential claim in progress would be my view
1: Lachlan, do you see similar mistakes happen with the way records are kept over and over again? Is there anything that you'd like to sort of shake people and say, don't do that, do it?
0: Well, aside from the obvious, that, of course, we would always say uh, don't dispose of anything. Um, you know, there's the obligation to preserve records, be they um, actually detrimental to your case or otherwise. But I think more widely, this feeds into the very important issue of Witnesses of fact after the events, and obviously, some of these projects can go on for years, and you know, it could be a final account or termination dispute. And if people are being asked to recall events from five, six, seven, ten, got an arbitration on at the minute with a work state back over a decade, um, unless you've got a robust um, series of, of um, records and all the evidence and all previous witness statements, perhaps the credibility of the evidence and the ability of the witness to actually properly recall facts is going to be really called into question. So inevitably, the better the records are, the more that's going to assist if things drag out or go unexpectedly wrong. And the better standing you'll be in in terms of the credibility.
1: What about preparing for hearings? What what should people be aware of?
3: Well, I think there are... uh a range of factors to bear in mind when you're preparing for a hearing because you've got what I'll call the factual side which is what the expert evidence and the witness evidence is going to be dealing with i.e what actually happened on the project what are the relevant delay events uh, what were their durations were there any concurrency etc and then on the other side, obviously, lawyers get very excited about the legal arguments when it comes to, you know, what's the proper interpretation of bespoke extension of time clauses, for example, or have notices been given in accordance with the contract. So when I get a case that's going to heavily rely on delay, then you know, just like the contractor or the employer, the aim is to familiarize yourself with the project to the point where you're almost comfortable with what's effectively been happening on a week by week basis, because it may well come down to that. You know, I think it was about two or three weeks ago I was doing a referral notice in an adjudication for an employer where we were disputing entitlements to extensions of time and there were 14 delay events that we were talking about so the fir- the first draft of that referral notice was 65 pages and that's you know in an adjudication that notionally is meant to last for 28 days so you can see the amount of work and preparation and familiarization with the material that's likely to be involved even in a dispute on that scale, obviously, when you get to disputes in international arbitration that might be worth a billion and, you know, have gone on for several years and it's on another level to the point where you know I might, I might be given two months just to consider a delay report.
1: That brings us quite nicely onto our next um topic which is kind of looking at the methods of dispute resolution and what the scope of delay analysis and the benefits of it are in in different forums so I mean how successful do you think delay analysis is in those short forms of dispute resolution such as adjudication?
3: I think inevitably it depends on the case and it depends on the particular circumstances because With adjudication and with delay analysis, there can effectively be two ends of the spectrum. So you can have one end of the spectrum where both parties are aware that there are disputed delay events and have obtained expert evidence, and they both think adjudication will be a cheaper way and a quicker way to actually resolve this, or at least get a preliminary indication of what the correct answer might be. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, you might be on the end of an ambush where All of a sudden, out of nowhere, you're served with a claim for an extension of time, which is supported by a delay report that's obviously been prepared months before. And the adjudicator goes, see, you can have 10 days to deal with it. And obviously, in those circumstances, you're unlikely to be able to get a thorough delay report in response, or you may be unlikely to get a a response at all. And in those circumstances, as counsel, and I'm sure Lachlan, as well as a solicitor, Your job is more to marshal your own witness evidence to dispute any issues of fact and then also just to pick apart uh, the opposing delay report. So it definitely can be used to good effect. But well, that obviously also depends on you know, how good is the report to begin with and how good is each party's case.
1: Lachlan, would you agree with that?
3: Yeah, I think that's right, really. Um,
0: it, it's entirely dependent on the background to the dispute, so uh, you know, whether or not um, certain type of evidence is going to be required. And I suppose picking up on Court's point there, um, it is highly frustrating when, you know, as he said, you get ambushed. Um, But I suppose that one of the benefits of adjudication is that, you know, that perhaps could be one of a series of alleged delay events. And, uh, you know, whilst you might be the responding party in that instance, you were then free to pick another delaying event or indeed, uh, you know, a greater chunk of that entitlement or element of any loss and expense that could follow from that in your own dispute. So um, clearly the, um, you know, truncated, Timeframe in adjudication is um, is beneficial in that respect, but if the dispute is uh, the dis- the delay dispute is uh, far wider, you know, as the court said, some sort of multi-billion-dollar infrastructure project, then it'll be an entirely different board game where there'll be comprehensive, respective reports from you know, the, the various
1: parties involved. Nigel, how do you approach it as an expert in those situations where you're ambushed? You know, do, do you have to look at things completely differently to how you would in a in an arbitration, for example?
2: Yes. Um, as Court and Lachlan said, you, it's the time constraints, really. If you're on the, the referring side, you have um, a lot more time to put your report together. Uh, in an adjudication, you might be on the re- responding side, presented with this delay expert's report, and ask to, to, put, to do your own analysis. Now, if, if the adjudicator applies some common sense, he will see there is a, a fairly substantial report there and he will give the responding side sufficient time to reply. If the adjudicator says, no, you can't have any more time than a week, then we're limited to really a critique of uh, what we receive.
1: Thank you. That's great.
0: Thank you for listening. Join us again for another In The About Time series. And for more information on any of the topics in this session, take a look at chronosconsult.com.